I probably shouldn't have said that because I'm sure you're not. So, you know, you're, you're past that, aren't you? So. No? <laughs> if I could just go back, do it all again. Well, last year during the summertime, I was actually in my personal time with God, my quiet time. Um, I was in the book of Revelation, just reading through the book, letting God speak to me through the Bible. And, and as I went through it, I really took longer a longer period of time in chapters 2 and chapter 3 because it just there, I'd never really st- stopped and asked questions about these chapters in the way that God seemed to be speaking to me about them this last summer. And so um, the book of Revelation is the very last book of the Bible. And it's a book about the future. Many people are fascinated with the future. Most of us really would like to know what's going to happen, what's going to go down in the future. And in our world, people are really fascinated with this whole idea of the future. What, who can forecast what's going to happen? So people do all sorts of things in order to like peek behind the veil, the mysterious veil of this present world, to be able to see what's going to happen down the road. And um, people in our culture, people in our society, in our world, you know, you, they might uh, check out their horoscope or maybe go to a palm reader, get tarot card reader, or just do things to... You know, people even channel spirits through mediums in order to get information about what's going to happen down the road in the future. But the truth is, there really is only one source. There's only one person who knows and will declare what's going to happen in the future, and that's God. There's only one. He's the only one that knows. And He's actually communicated a great deal with us about what's going to go down in the end and, and just down the road. God has revealed a great number of things in the Bible, in fact, um, in the Old Testament, there's some books in the Old Testament, some prophets that God spoke through, and their books communicate things about the future. Books like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, they all give us glimpses of the future. And Jesus, actually, in his time on earth and his ministry, he spoke about the future. Um, some of the leaders, Peter and Paul, who God used to write some of the New Testament books, they wrote some stuff in some of their letters about the future. But the book of Revelation really is, is the book that gives the most detailed look into the future in all of Scripture. And so if you're wondering what's going to happen at the end, um, God has actually communicated a great deal to us about this area. Now, just so you know, if you dive into the book of Revelation, which I really would encourage you to, to dig into it for yourself, to spend some time, just as I said I did in the summertime, to read through it and let God speak to you about what is this really saying? What is it? And... I can guarantee as you do that, you're probably going to be scratching your head pretty confused because it's full of symbols, it's filled with some, real, it's filled with some really obscure scenes from heaven, some obscure scenes from the future, lots of things that are really mysterious that um, people go round and round and round trying to debate, what do these things really mean? And so there's camps of people that, that believe these certain, you know, that this is what it all means and this is how it's all going to go down and there's another camp that believes this is how it's all going to go down and this is what this all means and, and another camp and then... And we can, we can get all hung up on interpreting the mysterious things in the book of Revelation and really miss the point of it all. And I think in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we really get the heart of this book. What is this all about? The book Revelation, the word, really has to do with something is being made visible. That word Revelation actually literally means to make visible. And so God is trying to reveal, He's trying to reveal something about Himself. The main character in the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ. He's the central figure. And 
in the book of Revelation, as you dig into it, you're going to learn several things about it. One, in the book, the book warns the church of just how dangerous sin is. And so there's this instruction in the book to, to really go after purity in our personal lives and as a church. As churches, I should say. So us for a church, or as a church, you know, the instruction in the book of Revelation really is to, to stay pure, to stay devoted, to stay holy. Um, also, the book of Revelation, another thing about it, just some facts as we get started. It reveals the strength that Christ and his followers have to overcome Satan, God's enemy. You find this out in the book of Revelation that God is victorious, or Jesus Christ is victorious, and his followers will have victory to overcome Satan. Also in the book, it reveals the glory and the majesty of God himself. You get pictures into the scenes of heaven, and it, you're, what we see depicted is worship surrounding the throne of heaven. You get these amazing image, images that we really can't, I don't think, understand fully. But God has given us a little bit of, he's given us some clarity to, to, to begin to understand what we have to look forward to. Also, this book reveals the end of human history and introduces some of the main characters who will lead in a rebellion against God and God's people to fight against him. In a major war, there will be this climactic battle you read about in the book of Revelation in which Christ will be victorious. Also, you learn that Christ is going to set up an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will have no end. And everyone will appear before Christ as judge. He will serve as judge. Pictures this great white throne of all and everyone from all ages will appear before him. Another thing you learn is a new heaven and a new earth will be ushered in. Satan, sin will be defeated once and for all. Like We're not going to have to deal with struggles anymore. Satan himself will be um, defeated and punished for all eternity. The wicked, those who decide not to yield their lives to Christ and to live life in opposition to Christ, will enter at that point, Scripture says, into an eternal torment in hell. And the righteous, those who yield themselves to Christ, the righteous will... They will enter into an eternal joy in heaven. We learn all these things in this book. It's an exciting book. Again, if you've never read it, you really need to read the book of Revelation. And um, I'll make an offer to you. If you read it and you're having a hard time understanding it, and the Bible that you have does not um, have any study help, study notes, if it's just um, like my Bible here, it's just the... It's just the pages of Scripture. It's got verses and chapters. And, but there's no really notes at the bottom. A lot of Bibles, study Bibles, they'll have like the text up top and then there'll be a line and it'll be like some explanation, some study notes. And I, I've got, um, we have in our office some study Bibles that I'd be happy to give to you if you don't have a Bible like that. And so just let me know. But if you'll take me up on the challenge to read through the book of Revelation, I'll give you a free study Bible So as you're doing that. So... Um, you can write that on your card if you want to do something like that. But, but in short, this book, it's like we're given the front page of a story of the future of the entire world, written by someone who's actually seen it. John, the guy that God used to, to pen these, these words in the book of Revelation, was exiled onto an island. And while he was, he was, really, he was being persecuted, he was exiled to this island, he, saw, he had a vision. And in the vision... He's given, basically, instructions on how to write this letter in the book of Revelation. And so, but we're, we're getting this front page of a story of the future. And 
what we're going to do with this series is we're not just going to walk through um, just the text alone. We're going to get into chapters 2 and chapter 3 specifically as we're going through the six weeks. But also, I'm trying to really get at the heart of the core issues that come up in, in why this was written. What are the core issues of why God would evaluate His churches? And so, as we do that, there is some help for you. Um, there's a study, a little message outline, so if you'd like to follow along in that, um, we're going to be looking at that. But I'm asking a specific question. You heard the intro video describing that there's these, in chapters 2 and 3, there's these letters to the churches in, in Asia Minor. And they describe the present state of each church, like the condition of what is going on in the churches. And there was some charges against some of the churches. There was also some, like, they were being commended for some things that they were doing. But in this series, what I want to do is look at a question um, continually. And the question is this, what would our letters say? It's really helpful to know what their letters said, because that tells you some of the common struggles that come up in, church, in churches. Some of them were approved and being found doing the right thing. Some of them weren't, and they were in, they were in danger of being terminated, done away with. And there is a reason why churches um, are empty. There's a reason why you sometimes go to these historic churches. Like, I've toured some places in the East Coast visiting Erica's family over there, and we'll go through these beautiful buildings that were once churches that are no longer churches anymore. What are they now? They're museums, and they tell history. But, but God's work is no longer being done in some of those places. People simply come in and take tours of what happened back in the day when these excited followers of Christ were doing something for Him to advance God's kingdom and His purposes. But now they're just these big buildings that are beautiful. And you've got to ask, why is that? Why, are churches, why do churches disappear? Why do they you know, get terminated? And, and really, what would our letters say? So imagine that we received something, you know, some sort of a letter and says, this is what, you know, this is from God. He gives us he gives us an evaluation, gives us a grade for here's how you're doing. Here's some things I observe. What would it say to us? I've been really mulling on that question since the summertime. What would our letter say? Because the truth is, Christ is actually evaluating our churches in the book of Revelation in chapter two. This isn't up on the screen, but in chapter two. One of the first churches that he comes to is the church of Ephesus. You can get to it real quick. Ephesus was in Asia Minor. It was a church that Paul, one of the early church leaders, had planted. And here it is. In the beginning, it says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Like I said... There's these mysterious symbols, okay? The seven golden lampstands, later we find out those are the churches, okay? And that Christ Himself is walking amongst the seven golden lampstands, meaning He's walking amongst His churches. And this is what God does. He evaluates. He is very much in our midst. He's not just paying attention to the way we do our service here, but He's actually looking at the way we do our relationships outside of this place. The way that we relate as a church community outside of these walls. He's walking amongst His churches. Not just our church, but every church that claims to follow Christ and hold to the truth of the Scriptures. He's evaluating. What are we about? What are we doing? Is there progress being made? 
Are we on track? Are we in danger? We are right now being examined by the Lord, both in our service time and outside throughout the week. And it's possible that we, any church, us included, can appear impressive from the outside, but face discipline and even termination by the Lord. And that's what you see in the case of five out of the seven churches that are evaluated in in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Thankfully, this scripture clues us into the core issues being evaluated. And the great requirement, you see this in your outline, is this, faithfulness. This is the great requirement. The churches be found faithful. So let's start here as we look at the issue of faithfulness and how it's connected to God's evaluation of churches. Faithfulness, what does it mean? Faithfulness, in a word is trustworthiness. To be true, trustworthy. It has to do with reliability. Basically, if if a person is faithful, then he comes through. He or she will come through every single time. That's a faithful person. A faithful church will be faithful to do what they say. They'll be faithful to the truth that they've been handed and they're asked to be held responsible with, to, to take care of, to manage. And what you find out in the Bible and through experience is this. God is faithful. We're called to be faithful because God first is faithful. That's in your outline. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful. God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's faithful. This idea kind of reverberates through the Scripture. This is just one verse of many where this idea of God's faithfulness, God does not lie. His words are true and trustworthy. What He says he will do. And he, you know, I, I can't make that promise. You can't make that promise. None of us are completely faithful, are we? But God is faithful. And He's the one that we're looking at and we're saying, I, that's, my, that's my example, that's my model, that's what I'm aiming for. He is faithful. He set that out before us. Another thing is God desires faithfulness in the followers of Christ. This is what He wants of all of us. Because He is this way. He desires this for every follower of Christ. For those of you who have decided already, I want to make my life about Jesus Christ. I've responded to His offer of a new life, forgiveness of my sins. I want to yield my life to Him completely. He desires now faithfulness, trustworthiness in our lives. First, when we, when we first identify with Him, from the moment we decide to yield our life to Him, He begins to monitor our faithfulness from that very moment. But this is really how he describes the churches. They were faithful. This is how churches qualified themselves. They were faithful ones. Look at what Paul says in his greetings to these two churches in Ephesus and Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. He describes the church as faithful. These were faithful ones. The same things in Colossians. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ the Colossi, Grace and peace to you from God, our Father. You have to ask ourselves, you know, am I being faithful? Personally, are we being faithful as a corporate body? Nothing is He calls us, He calls you, calls me to remain faithful throughout our life, the course of our life. When the world is pulling us away from God's plans and from His things, He desires that we stand strong that we stay faithful even if no one else is in this world, in our culture. When our faith is being tested, even if the whole culture or the whole world stands in opposition to God, He asks us to hang in there with Him, to hold on. 
Look at Revelation 17, verse 14. This is a verse talking about the war that, that will happen, the battle at the end, led by major, major leaders who will lead politically, and most of the, the, the people who will be living will follow after these characters to rebel against God. And, and it says Christ is going to come. He's going to defeat His enemies in this, in this major battle. And who will be with Him? His faithful and obedient followers. Look at what it says. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war against the Lamb. That's Jesus Christ. But the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. So those who obey Him and remain faithful will actually you know, be a part of that battle and will be victorious with Christ because of Christ. So we're to, be, we're to remain faithful. The tests come in our daily life, though. The tests come to our church on a weekly basis. Will we remain faithful? Or will we make ourselves about something that's not really found in the Scripture, but it's, it's, it sounds good in our culture, or it works, or it, it produces something? You know, we, we have to keep going back to the source and asking, are we being faithful to what God has asked us? Even to the point of death, God wants us to be faithful to Him. Look at, look at what the letter says to the church of Ephesus. I'm sorry, to the church in Smyrna. He says, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. So they were about to undergo an intense period of suffering, of persecution. But it would be brief. He's saying this ten days. Now, some people make this a symbol, and it means ten years. It might be ten days. But the point of it is they're about to go through a test, a major intense test. And here's what he says. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, this was one of the churches that was approved. He says, hang in there. Don't give in. Be faithful even to the point of death. You may die, but be faithful. And I shared a few weeks ago, One of my parents were here worshiping with us. They have some friends who are pastors in Nigeria who have a price on their head because they're Christians in in a tribe in Nigeria that is um, Muslim. And so because of his stand that he's taken to advance the name of Jesus, uh, he will likely die. And, and And this pastor knows that there's a price on his head. Does he leave and come to America? He has the ability to do that. No, he stays. Because he's willing to suffer for the name of Christ. He's willing to be faithful, even to the point of death. And many people actually face that kind of pressure on their lives every single day. We don't experience that a whole lot in, our, in America and in, because of the freedoms that we have, at least, up in, at least for now. I don't know if that's always going to be that way for, the, for our whole lives, but we have a tremendous privilege to walk with Christ and to advance you know, the kingdom, for now we have that. And sometimes it's easy to just lull ourselves into this culture and to not really rise up and to, to be faithful. So, but God requires this. Another thing, God requires that His servants be faithful. It's, just, it's the same thing because this comes up. This is the core issue. The way we handle this life and the message is not to be taken lightly. The care and the concern that we place as His servants is critical. Look at this verse. Paul's 
he's talking about his ministry and some of the leaders that were leading alongside him and how they were qualified. And some people were suspect on their lives and criticizing their lives and their ministry. And so he says, so then men ought to regard us, he's speaking of himself and church leaders, as servants of Christ. We serve Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. And now it is required that those who've been given a trust, they must prove faithful. This is the test. Later he actually says God Himself will check on Paul's service. He says, God will check in with me. He will judge my works. He will judge how I'm doing in this area of faithfulness. If I'm holding to the truth. God Himself, He evaluates these things. And Jesus, He illustrates, he illustrates this idea of faithfulness in a story about a man who he gave his, he gave his money to managers, stewards, who were put in charge of his resources. And one of them was found faithful. Or, I'm sorry, two of them were found faithful. But look at what he says to one. His master replied, well done, a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. This is Matthew 25:23. You know what the reward for completing a difficult task is in the kingdom? It's a much more difficult task. <laughs> the, re- the reward for being faithful in church life, it's more difficult things. It's more responsibility. Faithfulness actually leads us to more work and oftentimes leads us to larger scope of leadership or a larger scope of responsibility because this is the key issue. In fact, another thing in your outline, to be faithful is actually a much greater issue than to be effective. Faithfulness is much greater than effectiveness. But these two things of faithfulness and effectiveness actually work together. And I'm going to explain that in a second. To be effective is to produce a certain result. You know somebody's being effective if they're doing something, if, if production is happening. So like, for example, if we were to promote this big event and a bunch of people show up, you know, wow, that was effective. That was really effective. Or we raise all sorts of money and then we build some huge building Man, that was an effective fundraising campaign. They're really being effective. Um, those, those are signs of effectiveness. But the truth is this, and you see this in your outline, we can produce results, but we may not be found faithful. It's not just about results. There are lots of well-intentioned people who start off with, with a faithfulness to the message of Jesus Christ. They start, off, they start a church or a ministry and they're, they're locked in on the Scriptures but then, for the sake of effectiveness and results, they set this aside, they close the book, and they begin to build something that works in order to get more people there, to get more funds raised to support what they're doing, to carry out a vision that they themselves have laid out or inspired. It's not been inspired by God anymore. But it started off with, with you know, the Scripture. It started off with the truth and departed over time. Groups like that actually form pretty often. Me and uh, Bruce and Barry and Chris, four guys, we were up at Mount Rubidoux maybe a month ago. We were up at the top of Mount Rubidoux and we were reviewing some things that, some accountability things, reviewing some verses that we're trying to work on and memorize. And, and this guy run, is running up the hill at Mount Rubidoux. And we're sitting there doing our own thing, kind of obviously having a little bit of a meeting, powwow. This guy runs up and he's jogging and he, 
he sees us and he kind of stops and he waves and he keeps running up the hill and then and then he comes back and I noticed that he did that and I'm thinking I bet he comes over here when he comes down and sure enough when he comes down from getting the top of the hill he passes us and he stops and he walks up I think he had iPod on or something he took his headphones out and he's hey we're like you know hey <laughs> we're obviously in the middle of something and he's like you guys uh, doing a Bible study or something. We're like, no, we're just kind of, you know, he was, he was obviously a Christian. He was wanting to get in the mix of the discussion at that point. And we told him what we were doing. And, oh, you guys from a church? Yeah, we're from a church. Yeah, that's great. He says, I'm starting a church here. I'm part of a team that's been sent here from L.A. to start a new church at UC Riverside and targeting the campus. And I was, oh, yeah, what's, what's it about? And he starts describing, you guys should come. He's really putting the pressure on. You guys should come. And we're like, yeah, it sounds great. We're part of a church. And. He's not getting the clue, not getting the hint. And, I mean, he's excited, and I can understand. We started a church three years ago. We were really excited about getting people to check it out, too. You guys really should come. He's kind of putting the heat on, turning the heat up, and, and just the pressure. And I said, so who are you guys connected with? And he says this name, and it kind of struck a chord in my mind. I've heard that before. That just sounds a little suspicious. And, and uh, so I told... I, and then I just said, oh, okay, okay, that's interesting. And we had a little dialogue with him. And, and then he's like, no, you guys should come. Can I get your number? And we were like, he's not getting the, you know, we were trying to get something done. And we we're trying to not be rude at the same time. And we're like, well, and I just finally said, oh, I'm the pastor of the church and these leaders. And we're trying to, you know, do some things. And, you know, and, and he's like, it doesn't matter. Bring them all. Bring the whole church. And I'm like, man, this is really pushy. This guy's just, he keeps going. And then he's like, what did he say? He said, where there's a will, there's a way, you know. And, and I was like, wow, okay. Well, take care, man. And so he runs off down the hill and we're, you know, I commented to the guys. I said, I think that that guy's a part of a cult. A cult is something that is, uh, I, mean, I don't know if I need to define that, but many cults or churches that form, they start out on the right track and then they move in a direction they basically scripture is really important to many cults to many churches that don't follow christ anymore they actually throw christ in the mix but they elevate opinion or they elevate the the opinions of the leaders the people that are setting the stage for or the the leadership they they lower the scripture and they raise the opinions of the leaders and if there's a crossroads the leader's right you know where well, scripture needs to be the one that's right all the time it's in the crossroads and so I told the guys, I'm pretty sure that's part of something that's a cult. And so when I got home, I actually got in the car, Googled on our phone the name of the church. Sure enough, it was just this cult that I was familiar with from when I was in college that was out of L.A. and, and um, really targeting college campuses. And a pretty dangerous and divisive movement. If you're interested in more about that, you can ask me and I'll give you information about it. I don't want you to get confused because... If I name it, you're going to be all confused because the problem is people start off right, and so it, it the name sounds right. That you know all these things sound like they're on track. Um, so if you're interested, you can come talk to me, and I'll I'll make sure I clarify so you don't call the right group a cult because there you could get this confused, and that's the that's the problem. I don't want to get too off track, but I already have. But but the last thing that what I brought that up for was he, the guy was really, really interested in getting a lot of people to these meetings. And that's their strategy. Mass production. 
mass attendance. So they were really focused on the results. And results are impressive to the world, but some results are despised by God, depending on how we do it, depending on what we're promoting. Here's what God wants, though. He's very clear. The faithful one is this. The faithful one is concerned about loyalty to Christ. We're to be loyal to Him. He's the Lord. He's the boss. He's the master. We're to be loyal completely to Him. Faithful one is also concerned about truthfulness to His words and fulfilling their assignment. Basically, following His specific instructions as laid out in the Scripture. We're to be faithful to do what He's asked us to do. There's two different guys in Scripture. Jonah and Jeremiah. Just real quickly tell you about them. Jonah had this assignment, which was this. Preach repentance, which is turn your life towards God. Preach repentance or judgment in Nineveh. You tell them, they need to turn their lives to God or I'm going to judge them. And, you know, the results were great. Initially, they were great. There was this large scale, but a very short-lived repentance in, in Nineveh. And look at what it says, Jonah 3, 5, and 10. The Ninevites believed God. They actually yielded their lives. They declared a fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least. They put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion. He did not bring on them the destruction that He had threatened. So Jonah was asked to be faithful. Be faithful. This group is not going to like the message you're going to deliver, but he gives them clear instructions. Jonah had a little struggle initially on getting on board with God's plan, but he eventually got on board with God's plan. He went and carried out the assignment. And his evaluation by God was, you're faithful, Jonah. You were faithful to the assignment. Good job. The results, you know, God took care of the results, but Jonah was faithful. Jeremiah was another guy, a prophet to the, to the people in Judah. To the, and look at what you're going to see. I think I cut some verses out just for the sake of time. But Jonah's assignment was similar. Preach repentance or judgment in Judah. The results, though, were meager. People just kind of mocked what God was saying, mocked what, Jonah was say, or what Jeremiah was saying until judgment actually came and destroyed them. So it says in Second Chronicles 36, it says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became the king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. Verse 12 says, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and God, his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart would not turn to the Lord. Now Jeremiah was saying, Turn to the Lord. Lead your people to turn themselves to the Lord. Verse 14, Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had desecrated. I'm sorry, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Verse 15, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again. That was Jeremiah's role. Because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. And they were judged and carried off into exile. And, but Jeremiah, he was found faithful. He was approved because he stuck. He was loyal. He was truthful. And he fulfilled his mission. God assigns different kinds of stewardships to different people, to different individuals. A stewardship is a responsibility. With Jesus, Jesus had three key followers. Peter, James, and John. He had 12 disciples. But within the 12 disciples, he had three key followers. 
And Peter and John, it was interesting, they had, they had long ministries. They had different types of responsibilities. But all three of those characters, they faced severe persecution. Eventually, Peter died. Peter was crucified upside down for the name of Christ. He wouldn't, he wouldn't renounce his belief in Christ. He was crucified upside down, but he remained faithful and loyal. John had a different kind of stewardship, but he was persecuted as well. He was boiled in hot oil. He didn't die. He was exiled to an island. James, he was mar- martyred early on. He was killed early on for his faith. He had a different kind of stewardship. God only had him around for a little while, and he died. And he was stoned to death because he wouldn't renounce his faith in Christ. The key to the Christian life and to faithfulness is to understand what does God want from me and then to lock on and stick with that. What is God asking me to do and stay on track through the course of my lifetime? And as a church, what does God want us to do and how do we stay on track with that so that we are not extinguished, so that we're not judged and taken down and taken out? I'm going to have to blow through the rest of this. Effectiveness becomes a part of faithfulness when God has told His servants not merely to just do certain things, but to accomplish certain results. So effectiveness, like I said, is not the greatest thing, but it is tied to faithfulness at certain points. God actually wants us to be effective as well. Not just faithful, but also effective. Then to be faithful, Christ's servants must produce results. If we're going to be faithful, God actually wants us to produce something in this church and through our lives. The parable of the talents, Matthew 25. Jot that down there if it's not in the notes. Read that, Matthew 25, 14-30. The master, he goes away, he leaves his stewards in charge of different amounts of money to, to invest for his benefit, not for their own. He entrusts different amounts of money based on the abilities of these people. He goes away and he comes back and he calls his servants to bring to give an account just like he'll ask us to give an account for what we're doing. He asks them, come back and let me see what you've been doing. Two of the servants had doubled their money. They did something with it. They made something for their master. The third servant, what he does is he buries his. So he goes, he digs it up, and he brings it back. He doesn't do anything with it. He comes back with the same amount. The others invested and made money for their master. The third one wasn't faithful. He dug it out of fear. I'll let you read the reasons why. The master's evaluation was this. The first two were rewarded because they actually produced results. They produced something. The other one, who made no profit, lost his responsibility, and he was thrown out. He was punished for that. God actually expects that we don't just sit around, twiddle our thumbs in life, twiddle our thumbs even as a church. He expects that we make our life, He expects something out of our church. He wants us to make our lives more than just carrying out our own plans, living for our own interests. He wants us to get beyond ourselves and do something. Paul was concerned for results. I'll let you look those things up later. He was really concerned, and he would talk about the results that he knew God wanted to see out of his ministry. And in his ministry, he would highlight the results. Not because he was proud, but because he was being effective. And he wanted people to understand how important fruit was. Faithfulness is important. Fruitfulness is extremely important. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Paul was not working for his faith. He was working out his faith. There's really a difference. He wasn't working for it. He was working it out in the way that he did his life. He understood that God expected him 
to be a producer. So what does God want OCC, our church, what does he want us to accomplish? First, there are several activities that we must carry out. Worship, fellowship, serving, evangelism, teaching, missions. We must carry these things out. These are things that are non-negotiables for us as a church, according to Scripture. Secondly, however, we also have... We have results that we are to produce. We have to produce results. We must be both faithful and fruitful if we're going to be an effective church. Third, we're to carry the news about Him to the ends of the earth. Mark 16:15. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Acts 1.8 gives a scope of, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is the church. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He wants us to carry the news beyond just where we live in our community, in our city, in our state. He wants us to be involved both through support and even at times through direct involvement. God will call some people out to go. Fourth thing, Christ gives the results that He desires. And I wish I had more time, so I'm going to take just a little bit more. Matthew 28, 18-20. Therefore go to the... Therefore, Jesus came to the, I'm sorry. Then Jesus came to them and said, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." I have to stop there for a second. Since I didn't speak last week, I got a lot building up inside of me to get out. So, okay, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples. This is the great commission. This is what He wants from us. Go and make disciples. It does not say go and have disciples. It also does not say go and gather existing disciples and make a bigger church. But it says, go and make disciples. And I love this because it fires me up. that Our mission is to make disciples from among non-Christians. If you look at the, the A there, it says, disciples are continuing followers made from among non-Christian ranks. That is our mission. We're to be involved as a church in helping people become followers of Christ. If we're not doing that, if we don't care about that, we're not fulfilling our assignment. We won't be found faithful. We're just gathering existing believers with little or no concern for those who have yet to respond to Christ, then we're failing. Disciples were to be trained to obey all that Christ commanded. That's what you find in the Great Commission. You make disciples, then you train them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. That's why we do our small groups. Like Scott was saying, we do worship and we try to get people involved in groups to develop relationships, to grow. And then also you see in that verse the spread of disciple-making among all the nations. He wants us to show not only concern, but to be directly involved. These things that I've addressed, which is a lot, because I wanted to just get a lot packed into this first message to get us going in the series. These things do not have much to do with size of a church. These lay out the marks of an effective church, though. There are some limits, and here they are. We can't force people to become true followers of Jesus Christ. God is the one who draws them. But we get to be involved in sharing a message that gives people hope. We've got to, we've got to figure out how do we do that in, in a way that's clear, not rude, or ungracious, the Scripture says. You have, to, you have to work in the clear message, but be gentle and respectful as we do it. And since the good news of Jesus Christ has the power to save, we should expect to see fruit which is the great part about this. If we're faithful to do our job, we should expect to see God come through and provide fruit. And many of you already are testimonies of that. God has produced fruit. Another thing is we cannot make people learn to obey Christ. 
We can't force people to do that. Some people just dabble, but they never really develop. But the truth is, many people will respond, have good hearts, and fruit will bear in their lives, and we can be part of it. Let's, let's pray together as the band comes forward. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for...